of time and space. Everywhere and anywhere, every star that ever was. Where do you want to start? We have escaped from Martin Jarvis and the Vesper forms of Vortis, so it's time to head back into history and to bring Christ to the godless infidels. I'm Ian. And I really don't know what to say to that. I'm Mark, and welcome to All of Time and Space. This time round, we're going to be having a look at the Crusade. So let's get up to speed with where we are in the story. Arriving in the Holy Land in the middle of the Third Crusade, the Doctor and his companions run straight into trouble. The Doctor and Vicky befriend Richard the Lionheart, but must survive the cutthroat politics of the English court. Even with the King on their side, they find they have made powerful enemies. Looking for Barbara, Ian is ambushed, staked out in the sand and daubed with honey so that the ants will eat him. With Ian unable to help, Barbara is captured by the cruel warlord Elakir. Even if Ian escapes and rescues her, will they ever see the Doctor, Vicky and the TARDIS again? Well, let's find out after this. Ah, Sarah. Some business with you. Come closer. Your royal commands have been carried out, Your Majesty. Hmm. Take this gold belt to the Sultan Saladin. Beg him to release Sir William de Preo and your companion. Yes, how marvellous. You are very gracious, sire. Do you wonder why I listen to your appeal? It is a king's prerogative to make yesterday's deafness today's keen hearing. <laughs> no, more than that. Although we do not doubt that we are surrounded by loyal men, yet we fear that war is uppermost in their minds. Between ourselves, we plan a match between Joanna and Safadin to bring peace. This is why we choose to send you rather than those who are closer to us. Bring back Sir William and your companion. But bring us hope as well. This bloodletting must stop. May I leave at once, sir? Is it love of peace or love of your companion that prompts this enthusiasm? Well, whatever the reason may speed you back to us. I have one duty to perform before you leave. Give me the sword, boy. You are without rank or title, and while we do not doubt your courage, our emissary shall speak from a proper position of authority. What is your name? Ian Chesterton. Neil. But you hear my boy. Neil, Neil, come on up, come on up. In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, we dub you Sir Ian, Knight of Jaffa. Arise, Sir Ian, and be valiant. And welcome back. And I'm really pleased to say we've been joined for this episode by none other than Mr. Paul Schoons. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Before we get into uh, what we're actually here to talk about, unfortunately for you, it's, it's time for you to be subjected to the mind probe. No, not the mind probe. 
this is great this is great this is my bit right so i've done a brilliant quiz here right what we're going to do right now so paul as you know half of tonight's story is a missing story and so here are five more yeah yeah so here are five more doctor who stories which are 50 percent absent can you identify them if you uh, if you get them all right, obviously we'll make you uh, a lord of time and space. Oh, if you hmm. if you don't get them all right, I'm afraid you're going to get tossed into the time lash by Mark. Oh dear! <laughs> so you'll you'll pick up on the idea very very quickly. But uh, if you're ready, we shall begin. Question one, Paul: Which Doctor Who story is this? The blank of blank. Ooh. Oh. And it's a missing story. No, it's a, missing it's, story. it's 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 a it's a Doctor Who story, but fifty percent of it is missing for the purposes of me reading out its name. Oh, I see. You're right. <laughs> so it's not actually a missing story, you say? Uh, I no, I don't believe it is. No, but uh, but uh, but but two of its four words the, the are missing. The blank of blank. The blank of blank. Yeah. Gosh. Starting with a tough mm. one. <sighs> the Edge of Destruction. Oh, God, they're close. It was actually the Monster of Peladon, so right. no oh. points You can there. see how I get the two confused. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. probably people at, home, people at home were shouting at, the, uh, at their, at their <laughs> yeah, earphones. Yeah, totally. uh, okay, so question two. It's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. Question two. Blank, blank, the Daleks. <sighs> Ooh. <laughs> um. <laughs> I know, I know, blank, it's, blank such, it's a risky one. Blank, blank, the dark. You've really excelled yourself this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. It can't be of the, because it's only two, you've got two blanks there. Quite right. Uh, oh, God. Mm. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um... It's not any of them. It's not them. I'm, I'm, I'm furiously going through the through the Dalek story. Sure, here, here. Mark. Do you want to just quickly get the time lash warmed up? Just plug it in and give it five <laughs> yeah, minutes. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> you throw me in now. Put me out of my misery. <laughs> <laughs> just rearranging the tinsel. Here, right? <laughs> Surely all the Dalek stories have got four words and them, not three. Blank, blank, the Daleks. Oh, sorry. Okay, right. Sorry, I, I misheard the there. Yeah. Oh, you um, missed destiny right, okay. of the Daleks. Then it's it's death to the Daleks. Oh, look, it started uh. with a D. It did. You were so close. Um, Can you I, give him half a point for that? I mean, I mean, well, it's up, it's up to yeah. you because I know, I know. Well, Mark, I'm doing this for you because I know you you do like tossing people off into the time lash. So. I really do. Yeah, it's just a, like, a little side hobby I've got. All right. Well, you know what? Fine. Let's make that one half a point because uh, he, he okay. did indeed get the started with a D. So half points. Okay. Question yeah. three: um, the blank rescue dominators. Oh, oh so well, it was black and white. I had that much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want another half point for that? I mean, it's it's not going to save you at this point. But. <laughs> well, that's one yeah. full point I've got now. That's good. Let's do it. Fine, that's one point. Yeah. Okay. Question Excellent. four. We move to the Virgin New Adventure novels here. Uh, which Doctor Who story is this? Time Worm, blank. Apocalypse. 
It was Exodus. I'm not even oh. lying. I have written these all down, so I'm not even... Well, it was right I'm next door to it. I know it was. I know it was. Oh, man. Maybe... I mean, you've got a one in four chance of getting it right. Yeah. You? Oh, there we go. Yeah. But you'll be, you'll be pleased oh, to know are, the final question. These are hard. Right? I, I would say you've got a 50-50 chance with this one. Question five. Blank, blank, the Rani. <laughs> the mark of the Rani. <laughs> it was the mark of the Rani. Fantastic. Oh, well done. Did I get so a point? That's, oh, my goodness. You've got, so that's two points out of five, which <gasps> is less than half, wow. which I'm afraid means that at the end of tonight's exciting uh, episode, you will be summarily tossed into the time lash. So sorry, Paul. That was lamentable. <laughs> There's no excuses. I'm sorry. I mean, but thank you so much for coming. Before you do go into the time lash, is there any chance we can uh, have a little chat about the crusade? If you give me an extra point, then yes. Oh, go on then. If, if you talk about it really well. <laughs> oh, there's a challenge. <laughs> so you have a very special relationship with this particular story, Paul, for those that don't know. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, and, and a very old relationship with it too now, I realise. been quite a long time. So for a very, very long time, there was only one excellent episode doing the rounds, which was The Wheel of Fortune, is that right? Mm, that's right. Which was on the Hartnell Years tape, I remember watching on there. Oh, yeah. You were friends with someone who had a contact that was mm -hmm. into collecting... Rare films, is that right? Mm, a friend of mine called Neil Lambis, who I've known for many, many years. I used to run the mm -hmm. Doctor Who fan club, and he was he was one of my uh, good friends in the club. Uh -huh. so, so how did the story start? Neil was um, someone who, who was very uh, obsessive about missing episodes. He was always mm -hmm. coming up with theories. That, He's not alone there, to be fair. No, I know that, but uh, we're, I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> that's the, the important context, as is Neil. <laughs> so the likelihood of episodes existing in New Zealand is that much more removed from, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, obviously we know that an episode did exist in New Zealand now, so it's good to say in hindsight, well, you were completely wrong. But at the time, it seemed like yeah. you know, it was a remote possibility, even more remote than, say, you know, a Mormon church in London or something. That that <laughs> yeah. an, which is random enough in itself, that an episode mm. would be found in New Zealand just seemed that much more remote. So for Neil to go on about the possibility of a missing episode or or episodes in New Zealand just seemed that much more fantastical and unlikely. Mm. But Neil was quite so sort of dogged about this, and 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 I mean he's um, separately um, quite strong in his feminist belief that he saw the macro terror. Um, shown on on a projector at, at at his school during a rained off sports day so that's something that he's he's tried to research over the years and in, in the hope mm. maybe that film print has, has been kept somewhere in new zealand so this is the sort of thing that that, that you know neil neil has these theories and, and you know and at the time you're kind of oh neil's got another theory you have to roll your eyes a bit i mean i, I say this <laughs> in retrospect because obviously we, he was right and we were wrong so i'm i'm not mocking him oh, we've all fantasized about <laughs> making a find like this but um there's very few people who can actually turn around and say well actually i did find one well that's right it is the dream really of doctor who fans isn't it it's the sort of the number one obsession that that, that fans share is 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 the 
the sort of the, the the fantastical idea that you might one day stumble across in this episode of Doctor Who. So 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 Neil uh, had a uh, well, we had a mutual friend and a, a guy called Cornelius Stone who was another Doctor mm-hmm. Who fan, and um, Cornelius. So this is sort of a you know he, you know he know he knows type situation. He knew a film collector called Bruce Grenville, and uh, Bruce mm-hmm. had a collection of sixteen millimeter film prints which he would show on his projector at his home of all sorts of random assortment of things, whatever he managed to lay his hands on. And Cornelius um, met up with Neil one day in a comic shop in in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, mentioned offhand that he'd seen a episode of Doctor Who, you know, on on Bruce had shown an episode of Doctor Who on his projector, and Cornelius had seen this. Mm -hmm. And... um, Neil obviously Neil's ears perked up because you know obviously this is you know an obsession of Neil's as I've mentioned, and um, Cornelius was a bit vague on the details, but from the way he described it, um, Neil um, got the idea that this is this is an episode of the Crusade. Yeah, and you know the 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 his his instinctive reaction was well, it's probably you know inevitably it's probably going to be the Wheel of Fortune because that's the The one that survives. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know there was enough there was enough optimism for him to say, "Well, look, you know, can you put me in contact with Bruce? I'd love to go and see this episode for myself." And so Cornelius mm-hmm. did this for for, for 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 Neil. And so Neil made contact with Bruce and said, "Look, you know, I'd love to come around and and see this episode of Doctor Who you got on your film projector." And thinking that you know on the possibility it might be a missing one, he. He asked if we could, you know, it could be videoed. If he could take a video copy of it while while it was being projected, mm-hmm. you know, set up a video camera in front of the screen and uh, and 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 video it. Which Bruce, yeah, you know, Bruce, Bruce, in context, Bruce had no idea what this film was other than it being Doctor Who. He didn't. He had no awareness of missing episodes. Sure. He wasn't a fan himself. So, so his thing was, oh, this is just an episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, sure, you can do that. I don't know why you want to do it, but you know, sure, why not? That's the thing. There's so many people who have no idea that there are missing episodes. So your well, average yeah, person I mean, just thinks, oh, well, it's just an old Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 you know. Bruce just thought it was an episode, obviously, that was available everywhere, and he just happened to have a 16mm film print of it. Um, so um, that put Neil in the quandary, because although, obviously, he got a, you know an um, agreement to, to video it, he didn't have a video camera. Mm-hmm. So knowing that I did, he, he, he phoned me up and said, would you like to come along? And honestly, that's probably the only reason that I went along, because I think Neil probably would have just gone by himself, you know? <laughs> So that's the, the, by dint of me owning a video camera, that was my in, if you like. Um, so I mean, I knew Neil. Neil was a friend of mine, but you know, I, I, Neil had no particular reason to invite me along to this thing. And sure. uh, so I said, oh, "Okay, Neil." And um, obviously, um, Neil needed a lift, as that's right. Neil didn't have a car, so so he was like saying, "Well, can you can you drive me there as well?" So I picked up Neil in town, and we 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 drove over to Bruce's. Um, one one summer's evening, and mm-hmm. um, we endured a very long wait when we got to Bruce's because Bruce had um, sat down to watch a a very long a film called Veronica Voss, which was, uh, to my mind, a terribly boring film that that we were just impatient <laughs> to be over. 
and and, and as I mentioned on on a previous podcast, I, I I've realised I've been doing um, um, Bruce a great disservice over the years because I've always told this story in terms of like being wound up by Bruce in terms of like he's going to just sort of just make us wait and play out this sort of anticipation. But what I realized mm-hmm. in, in hindsight and only quite recently is that this was a early January evening in New Zealand. That's the height of our summer. And of course, being a film projector, right. you need darkness to screen the, and, and, sure, and Bruce was yeah. watching this on, on television. He was, so he wasn't projecting on, you know, he was, he was watching something on television. Oh, okay. so just waiting the, for the know, conditions to be right. Absolutely, it needed to be dark in order to put the projector on. So I kind of like, yeah. <laughs> if I'd realised that earlier, I might have felt more kindly towards him. Bruce might have given him a slightly easier time. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed a huge frustration at the time, and and because we didn't know. I mean, I I was particularly sceptical about this going into it, mm-hmm. but I was prepared to humour Neil because you know I. I you know, Neil's a good friend of mine. Now, I, I wanted to support him yeah. and, and, and his belief that there was a missing episode. But I did have this mm-hmm. pervading attitude in my mind, although I didn't voice it, that we were being set up. It was a hoax. Because it wouldn't be the first time, right? Because you read about these... Did I read somewhere that New Zealand TV, they, they didn't actually show the crusade? Oh, that's right. Never screened here. Another reason why it seemed unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, you, you read about these things, say, particularly say on uh, in Doctor Who magazine. You know, you read about the, like the tenth planet four being discovered, and it turns out to be an elaborate hoax by mm. someone. That was the sort of thing that was running yeah. through my mind going into it. So, it really, wasn't until we got to see the film that uh, that that those sort of dark thoughts evaporated, if you like, for me. So that was mm-hmm. quite a sort of moment of elation when I realised that in fact yes we were watching a extremely rare missing film print. So so what was going through your mind when you saw the lion come up on the screen for the first time? <sighs> it's I would have liked to have enjoyed watching it, but the whole way through, or my mind was just racing. What the hell do we do? Because mm-hmm. I was just thinking. <laughs> This is a unique film, you know, there's no other copy of this anywhere in the world. So things like I was very much mm-hmm. aware that it's clacking through the projector. What if it dam- what if it jams? What if it tears? What God, you know? yeah. <laughs> the quality yeah, I mean you've seen from the, the recordings, you've seen the quality of it isn't isn't that great. There's yeah. obviously sustained some damage mm-hmm. over the years. So I'm kind of thinking, don't 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 damage it any further. <laughs> and also <laughs> not knowing Bruce very well, only really having met him that evening, mm-hmm. I would and I was kind of like going, well, in my mind, I was thinking this as we were watching, uh, it's going, what is this guy going to be like? Do we play it cool? Do we mm. tell him it's a missing episode? Is, is he going to be like sort of, I'm never letting anyone else ever see this ever again type thing? And it's yeah. a part of my mind, because bear in mind, I've got, I've got the video camera set up and we're, we're recording the, what's mm-hmm. on screen, that that might be the only copy that ever gets out into the wild. Yeah. So yeah, that that... It kind of spoiled my enjoyment of just actually mm. sitting there and watching the episode a little bit. And every time I've watched The Lion since then, those thoughts come back to me. That sort of memory trigger of, of, of <laughs> that anxiety of those 25 I'm minutes. I'm getting stressed of, just of, listening to you talk yeah, about that. Yeah, I can, I can totally <laughs> well, imagine easily, that. It could easily have gone a different way. It could easily have gone yeah. a different way. Mm. We, it may never have got out of private hands, you know? So yeah. it was a, a little bit of a sort of a stressful experience. I don't. I, I'm. I think Neil was a bit more optimistic and relaxed about it than I was. I don't think he had quite the same mm-hmm. sort of concern about 
Um, you'll have to get Neil on at some point and, and ask him directly, but I, th- I think he was more optimistic that we would be able to work something out. But yeah, yeah. We, we didn't really discuss this beforehand, unfortunately, because we didn't. I didn't really have a game plan, so um, Neil, I wasn't quite sure what Neil was going to say to Bruce either when the when the episode finished. So Neil might have like he might have overreacted to it and really sort of got Bruce, you know, really sort of. Uh, unreal expectations about it so uh, yeah. i didn't quite know how how we were going to play it because we hadn't hadn't really sort of worked out what mm-hmm. we were going to say to bruce so it was all a bit <laughs> anxiety inducing for me <laughs> just overthinking it and at the same time going i'm watching an episode i may never get to see again because you know this is this may be the only time i get to view it so paul try and just calm down and concentrate and watch your viewing <laughs> so all this is running through my you head. can imagine going onto the forums and saying oh well you know i've, I've seen a copy of the lion and just people turn around and going uh, yeah of course you have me yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you're lying about the lion yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah i mean we we uh, fortunately played it quite cool with bruce explained yeah. to him quite clearly that it was a missing episode he was very skeptical about it he just didn't believe that the so you talk about um episodes you know people not necessarily being aware of being the missing episodes of doctor who out in the wider community yeah. Well, Bruce was one of those. He just didn't believe the BBC would be so foolish as to get rid of any of them. They, they were basically <laughs> all available as far mm-hmm. as he was concerned. He says, well, no, I've seen the videos in the shop, so they can't be missing. You know, that was his attitude. <laughs> yeah, not this going, one. Well, I'm sure they're all out there. Yeah. yeah. So his, I think oh, his man. thing was, well, you must have seen this episode before, but you've never seen it on a 16mm film, and that was the novelty of you coming around to see it that way. So that mm-hmm. that was his you know, obviously our, our, I think our conviction quickly won him over to the idea that, yeah, he did have something rather more unique than that. And he, and he did get quite, quite interested at that point. I, th- I think, you know, initially early on, I probably could have made him a, a quite a low ball offer and actually bought the film print and walked away with it. But I wouldn't have felt mm. good about doing that. You know, no, no, no. Um, so, so we basically said to, to Bruce, let's, let's just, you know, let you think about it for a few days and I'll, I'll come back to you. And what we'd like to do is to borrow it and send it to the BBC so they can copy it and then return it to you. And he seemed, you know, okay mm-hmm. with that. And we left it there. And Neil left me to do all the follow up from that point. So that's kind of, Neil made the discovery. I went along as his, his wingman effectively. Um, yeah, but from that point onwards, it was up to me to sort it all out. Neil lives in a different city, so he had to go back home, mm-hmm. and so he didn't, he couldn't come back and see Bruce. So I, w- I was left to do all the follow. No pressure then, Paul. <laughs> no, <laughs> but when you when when you describe who's responsible for the fine, that's that's the important distinction to make. Neil made the fine. That's that he deserves all the credit for that. It's all these connections, but isn't I'm, it? If he yeah, hadn't have met Cornelius I'm, in the comic book store that day, I mean, it could have been such right. a different chain of events. <laughs> yeah. like Cornelius could have mentioned this to someone it. else who knew what, what Bruce had, and someone exactly, else could have yeah. made that fine. Yeah, yeah. It's just, or nobody would have known. Mm, Bruce had only had, Bruce had had the episode for about six months at that point. So was it? It was down to you to to send the film back to the BBC in in the UK. Yeah, I had to do all the. I had done the, the negotiations because I had to get in touch. I think it was um, Steve Roberts at the restoration team forum that they had at the time. I contacted oh, yeah. Steve through there, and I th- I can't remember quite how, but I think Steve already knew who I was. Well, we must have had some sort of dealings. I mentioned I ran the fan club and published the magazine, so Steve probably mm-hmm. knew of me through that. And, yeah. and so when I got in contact with him, he, he obviously 
didn't he wasn't skeptical you know what i mean steve steve roberts was like yeah mm-hmm. oh, i'll call you if, you know this is it's really exciting so he was quite positive when when, when he replied um and so uh, i i went back to bruce and uh to, to borrow the film print and um bruce mm-hmm. by this time had got cold feet about it this is the the additional level of anxiety oh. so if you're not already lying down you will be now because i turn up to bruce in the expectation i've arranged him on the phone to borrow the film print he says yes so he says come around borrow the film and uh i turn up and he goes no i've changed my mind you can't have it and so that <sighs> was a <laughs> that was stressful <laughs> um because you know, it's, it's, victory is being snatched away from you at the last minute. So, yeah. So I had Jeez. to go back to Steve Roberts and get a um, emailed letter from him, basically stating the BBC's point of view that you know the, their terms uh-huh. of wanting to borrow it. Um, yeah. And I printed that out, took that back to Bruce, and that that was a. I, I also wrote Bruce a personal letter endorsement too. He was quite insistent he needed that from mm-hmm. me as well as some sort of. Right. I mean, Bruce's point of view, he didn't know me very well. I didn't know him very well. So I was going to say, I was he concerned that you were just going to go off with it and he was never going to see it again? Or Yeah, I think so. Or I mean, it... I, I can understand mm-hmm. that point of view. We've just, we've just yeah, told him sure. that it's something quite valuable and now he's, put, he's putting it in my safekeeping. Um, you know, I think I even offered yeah. to pay a bond, but I don't think he needed that. He just, just wanted those letters of, you know, that just to show that mm-hmm. we're a... You know, that we were above board, but I could have written a letter Legit. and said anything, really. <laughs> a gentleman's <laughs> agreement, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got the stress of waiting for the, the courier <laughs> to deliver it into the hands of Steve yeah, Roberts. I, yeah, I had to FedEx it to the, the, the BBC. Um, I FedExed it not to the BBC, I FedExed it to Steve Roberts because the risk uh-huh. was that if it went through the BBC well, mail we know, we know how great it. they are at uh, handling yeah. calls about missing episodes of the BBC. Well, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, no, we've already got season one. It's all on DVD. Don't worry about it. Just chuck in the bin. It's fine. Yeah. See, the thing, the thing about the restoration team, although Steve and some of the others worked for the BBC, they were a sort of a mm-hmm. separate unofficial outfit. That yeah. Sort of, they, weren't, they wouldn't have like an office at the BBC where the restoration team were based. They were, they were independent of all that. No. So mm-hmm. you couldn't ring up the BBC and say, I'd like to speak to the rest, Doctor Restoration Team. There was no such entity within the building. So no, no. if it had gone through the mail room, the chances are it would have, they, no one would have known where to deliver it to or, or it might mm. have just got lost or someone, might, someone nefarious might have realised what they actually had and taken it home with them. Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. all, all these all these things were potential risks so sending it directly to steve's home address was a far more um safe option did you pay the extra Um, to get it signed for probably yeah i mean it was was basically (laughs) premium fedex it was whatever you know it was whatever the most i mean this is a this is the sorry that was very (laughs) (laughs) there was there was was no way we were going to skimp on expense on on getting this yeah no of course (laughs) to the uk Oh wow! Uh, and 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 so that was all good. That was basically that was the the the, the end of the anxiety, I guess. Is 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 mm. that you know once Steve had acknowledged that he'd received it and and in good condition and everything that, and that was only a couple of days. You know, it basically went as fast as anyone would fly to the UK. So so it wasn't much of a wait. Mm. And 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 so yeah, mission mission accomplished, successful. They had the, they had the film. They could start restoring it, and and, and everyone was happy. So yeah. That was wow. uh, that, 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 that was a mission well done, right? <laughs> yeah, 
yes, we owe you all of you guys a, a massive debt of thanks. Yeah, it seems unreal now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I've told the story what many times over 22 years now, almost. That's that's like uh-huh. if if you were if I was a fan and I was a fan in say 1985, looking back at the beginning of Doctor Who, that seems like an eternity ago. Mm. That's how long there is between yeah. Finding the Lion and now. It's just yeah, that's <laughs> a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are, <laughs> I, I I run into adult fans of of Doctor Who now who were not born when the lion was found, and that makes me feel old. Yeah. That is yeah. quite. Yeah, it's quite scary. <laughs> yeah. So now you've had a bit of a chance to get over the the initial shock and nerves of the discovery. What do you actually think of the lion as an episode? How do you how do you rate it? Do you think it's a good one? I do. I, I've come to this. I've come to this view later in life. I mean, I was probably a bad fan when I was younger, in the sense that I didn't rate the <laughs> historicals very highly. They were sort of. Uh-huh. I don't think I, you I were think a, as, a massive outlier on that, Paul. To be honest. Well, I mean, but you know, it's, <laughs> it seems sort of disrespectful to me <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of my association with the story to say this, but um, uh, certainly when I was when I was a, a younger, more impressionable fan, shall we say that that I mm. regarded the Hartnell historicals as the the boring filler between the exciting sci-fi stories, and yeah, which is you know, kind of an absurd position to take because when you look back in them in context now, I think probably the historicals are the the better, you know, the, the, the they better really productions. Are. Yeah, I mean, the BBC does it so well. Doesn't it? Yeah, they knew how to make historical dramas even before Doctor Who came along, so they were already well-versed mm. in this, whereas the sci-fi yeah. st- stuff was, a, was more of a struggle for them to get right, I think, because they weren't nearly so proficient at it. So when you look at that in context, you go, well, of course they were doing good, good with the historicals. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> and, and probably like a lot of fans, as you say, that that, that in later years I've, I've come to revise my opinion of the Hartnell era and regard the, the 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 historical stories as the sort of the gems of the of the era now. Maybe uh, and it's a roundabout way of saying that I rate the the Crusade very highly. I think it's probably one of the strongest stories of Hartnell's second season. Yeah, I think you're right. I think certainly everything you've said very much chimes with how I was as a kid, you know, reading the Target books. And I think I've mentioned this before when we had uh, David Kitchen on. You know, if you're at primary school age and you're looking for a new Doctor Who book, are you going to go for the one with a cool Cyberman on the front or are you going to go mm. for the one with some beardy guy in a crown? There's not, yeah. you know, there's not an awful lot of uh, choice there. You're going to go for the Cyberman. Well, now, I think now, you're right. You, you come back to it that, later Mark, in life. You say that, but the novelization <laughs> of the Crusades was about 800 pages long. So, uh-huh. in terms of sheer <laughs> story for your, you know, bang for your buck, you're you're better off yeah. with the Crusade than say a Terence Dix. So, have you read the uh, the Target book, Paul? Yeah, yes, I had. I mean, I was a huge fan of the Targets. There probably was a time when I was a young mm. fan when I was more of a fan of the Targets than I was of the television program. To be honest, I think I got mm-hmm. although I'd watched it from a young age, it was really collecting the Targets that made me an obsessive fan. I started paying much more yeah. attention to the television series as a result of reading the books. Oh, I can and that totally sort of relate gone, to that. The, the sort of the realisation, all this new story I'm watching, one day I'm going to be able to own the novelisation of this, so I better pay attention because I'd be really interested to see how they're going to <laughs> going to adapt it. So the, 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 the Target books were the end goal, you know? They were the, they were the videotapes of their day. So 
Yeah. I, I watched the television series as, as a sort of... Uh, a sort of precursor to, to, to the ultimate goal, which is to own the target, <laughs> yeah. which is an absurd way of looking at it, really. <laughs> but yeah, the, coming coming back to the Crusade, definitely I had that um, target uh, novelization from very early on, and that was the only mm-hmm. historical novelization, wasn't it, for a very long time? Yeah. Am I right in thinking that? It was a long time before we got any of the other historicals novelized. I think there were three or four novelizations that were done under a a different publisher and then target picked up was the it the the, then... uh, the the zabi and doctor here in yeah. exciting adventure with the daleks and the crusade and that was mm-hmm. it till about yeah. 73 yeah. i want to say mm. Mm. yeah and and then once once the target books did take off in 73 it was a long time before we got any historical stories yes novelized yes, of so for a very long time even after that point the only historical adventure you'd have on your bookshelves would be the crusade. So it was kind of like mm. the example by which you understood all, all historical Doctor Who stories to be. And it's kind of like if, if you wanted to understand what, what, a, what a Hartnell historical was, crusade was the only story you could pick off your shelf and read and go, well, that's what the historicals must have been like. So it's kind of set the standard. Turgid. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and the danger always is when you really enjoy a Target novel is... If that's your first exposure to it, it's then when you actually watch the the program, are you still going to be swept away with the story, or is it going to be a bit of a crashing disappointment having imagined this great epic story in your mind? A little bit of a diversion around this is that um, being in New Zealand, we had a very long period where Doctor Who stopped being screened in in this country, but the Target books continued uh-huh. to come out, and so. There's, there's, there's a period in the, the, the um, mid-1980s, we're talking the second half of the Davison era and all of the Colin Baker era, mm-hmm. where I was reading all the targets and forming a mental impression of what the, the series was like in my mind without mm-hmm. having seen any of the television stories. And so, like you were talking about, this crushing disappointment was, was, was totally a story <laughs> like Warriors of the Deep or Terminus. <laughs> yeah. The story that I built yeah, up oh, in goodness. my mental picture in my mind was way above what I finally saw on screen. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think Crusade possibly. It's hard to remember now. I mean, you know, but I can't remember how. But, but I think that I thought. I mean, Crusade the novelization is terribly more violent, isn't it, than the, the broadcast story? There's a lot more sort of graphic. Well, I was sort thinking of the broadcast one was pretty, pretty full on, wasn't it? I mean, for what something's yeah. considered to be a children's program, you got mm. uh, Barbara isn't being handed a, a knife to kill herself mm. and the. Sure. Yeah, the daughter in case the guys come into the house. And... Now, it's a long time since I've read the novelization, but I remember the the, the beatings in the, mm-hmm. in the fourth episode at the harem being a lot more graphic than they are on screen. Not that we yeah. can actually see uh-huh. it, obviously, but the way they're described. No, no. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, there a, isn't there an illustration in the book of, of Barbara being thrashed to a whip or something like that? Something similar to that. Oh, blimey. Yeah. It stands up really well. Me and Ian mm. have been gushing about Marco Polo which is another missing episode and that was one of our favorites right. from from season 1 and I think this is very much in that kind of ballpark in terms of the quality of the story the cast I think is superb mm. and when you chuck in someone like Douglas Camfield directing I think it's a pretty decent lineup for for the TV version it's astonishing that it's very early in Camfield's career, isn't it? It's only like his mm, second yeah. Doctor Who story, I think, that he's done. 
and 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 for him to do such a good job on on such an early you know one of his productions in his career is is, is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, the cast are phenomenal. I think I was struck by how sort of dynamic some of the fight sequences were in uh, in in I think it was in The Lion, um, where you've got this kind of cameras going round in a circle, and you've got the kind of disorientating mm. effect of the yeah. of the sword fight. It's definitely moved on from the Aztecs, hasn't it? Well, it certainly has. But then also there's a, a very filmic sort of um, close-up and, and then slow fade in part three on... I can't remember whose face, probably. Um, probably someone important. Um, yeah, and it, <laughs> just, it just struck me as really, really filmic and really good direction. And that's the first time that I've really been pulled out of one of these stories by... A you know directorial flourish. Mm. It's quite it's quite an ambitious story too for um, you know the fact that they are confined to a very small studio for most. Of it. I know they do do some at Ealing, so a few of the scenes mm-hmm. for the fight scenes, but for the majority of it, it's a very small confined set. So what they manage to achieve with it is, is quite remarkable. I mean the the forest scenes in the in the first episode, you know intellectually that this is a studio set, but it looks quite convincing to my eyes. Yeah, it's very good. Mm. And I think this is uh, one of those occurrences where I'm hoping our Ian will be a bit more positive about Ian Chesterton. I think he's really heroic in this one. Well, p- perhaps we'll come to that. Actually, I was... There, <laughs> Still not convinced. There is an interesting moment <laughs> right right at the top of the lion where you first see our Ian Chesterton. Um, and he's mm-hmm. got really distinct bed hair as he's kind of peering through the <laughs> through the forest, which makes me wonder if this is what Matt Barber would describe as the Chesterton Wright consummation moment. Oh. Like maybe they've just been, <laughs> maybe they've just been all a passion in the TARDIS, and they've they've come out, and he's, he hasn't had time to smooth his hair down yet. I don't remember him smoking a cigarette, so I'm well, not he might have, sure about he that. He might have just uh, sort of finished that in the in the TARDIS and sort of, you know, oh, maybe. F- flicked it out maybe, as he yeah. as he walked out. But that, so that was that shows you where my mind went. That was my first thought. Um, but also, when the TARDIS materialises, it's got a completely different sound effect, which I thought was yeah. interesting. I mean, some of the earlier um, stories they don't even do a sound effect. They, they just you just get that sort of, um, sort of visual roll back and mix effect, yeah. and then the TARDIS is just there. So yeah. it's still early days, I guess. Yeah, well, I suppose was... at that point they they still hadn't agreed on a standard, had they? They hadn't like gone. It's going to no. always yeah. sound like this when it materialises. They were still working that out. Or maybe he just mm-hmm. landed in a different gear to the gear he usually lands in, and so it, it makes a different <laughs> noise. I mean, who knows? I've never flown a TARDIS. Maybe he had the blue boringers switched on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Isn't there that Matt Smith story where he talks about the sound is because he's left the brakes on? Maybe he took the brakes off. Yes, the handbrake. River Song tells him he's left the handbrake on. Yeah, he had actually removed the handbrake once. Yeah, I thought that 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 was an incredible moment of genius. But but we're not here to talk about the Matt Smith era. We'll get to that in approximately 77 years. Uh, (laughs) I thought... Walter Randall as Ella Keir was very much, he's very close to that sort of level that we got from the character in Marco Polo, who escapes me now. Tagana, yeah, it's definitely, right. certainly up, up at that level in terms of just being a very shifty individual. I thought he was really good. Very realistic, mm. very frightening, very composed, very understated. 
you know, as understated as you can be with all that makeup on to make that sort of scar effect face. Mm. Um, yeah, I, he was wonderful, wasn't he? Mm. Talking of makeup, I suppose we should broach the subject. There was um, white actors having to uh, black up or, or wear makeup to portray mm. characters of other ethnicities. At least this time round, they did actually have some actors in who were uh, certainly there's the lady that tries to help Barbara. I think she's of Indian descent. Right. Yeah, I think, I think there, there were, one there or two were others a lot in there as well. of ethnicities represented in in the harem. Um, yeah. Otherwise, it was it was mainly a lot of sort of middle-aged white men uh, playing, yeah. playing, which you know, mm. morally, obviously, now we live in a different era and we can mm. we can judge it differently. But at the time, that was just how it worked, and so mm. you know, yeah. they, you you can't get too hung up on it. Um, no, no, but you have to take it for what it is. Yeah, and and for for what it was, I you know, no one was no one was giving a, a clumsy, comical, or or kind of offensive no. performance. So uh, you know, I think Bernard Kay as uh, Saladin, I think he comes across as a very sort of regal and dignified he's a character very, that comes out of it very well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So to me, he was... he's he's the standout. I, I think I think Bernard mm-hmm. Kay is a standout of the cast. He he yeah. his he's playing a villain, but he doesn't play it as if he knows he's a villain. He's, no, he, he's no, it's very nuanced. You know what I mean? He's certain in his convictions, and he's very level, and he's very his his strength of conviction really comes across on screen. Whereas another actor mm. might have taken the opportunity to ham that up and been a bit more sort of you know villainous flourishes and and and, and really plays. Well, as far with as that he's part. concerned, he's the hero of the piece, and these other. People, Richard the Lionheart, are uh, they're the yeah. bad guys. Um, I mean, it plays out really well. He plays it with as much conviction and as much certainty as as, as Julian Glover does. He's a really good counterpoint. Mm. Yeah, I think I seem to remember seeing interviews where uh, Julian Glover and Gene Marsh had said they got a bit they got told off by the production team because they were trying to sort of drop subtle hints into their performance that there might have been something a bit more than that 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 comes from the script they were actually yeah. as my understanding of it is that they were given the rehearsal scripts that actually had that in mm-hmm. it so they were reacting to what the script was directing but that during mm-hmm. the course of rehearsals the 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 way it's told is that i think it's hartnell in particular objected to the way that he, he, he wouldn't mm-hmm. have it you know he's basically saying no you can't do this on, on Doctor Who and so the scripts were rewritten but because Glover and Marsh had already seen the scripts they were still playing it yeah. in that direction that's uh, my understanding anyway because I thought they were just channeling um, Cersei Lannister and um, you know <laughs> sort of 40 years early <laughs> yeah. or whatever it was they'd seen Into the Future and gone oh let's well look, they'd let's seen Into like the Future that. they'd seen Julian Glover was going to become Meister Pycelle when they started filming Game of Thrones <laughs> that's right um, so that was that was the direction they took it fair enough <laughs> yeah otherwise cast wise I think there, there were some incredible moustaches going on in, in The Lion mm. did you and beards yeah yeah Deturnabu had a, a bit of a and oh my right my only real criticism <laughs> i guess it's it's i suppose it's i suppose it's the way he's had to play it because that's how it's written but the chamberlain goodness me mm. what an absolute 
goon <laughs> when he's trying to he, he accosts the doctor and says oh you've you've stolen these clothes from me but you mm. say that it's, I stole them from him as well I can't have stolen them from you and from him and that sort of that little sort of it, it took a while for him to sort of twig that maybe the doctor hadn't stolen them in the first place the thing that the thing that bothers me a little bit about the crusade is that the doctor's part seems to most to be the weakest in the sense that he's stuck with this court intrigue which doesn't really progress he's kind of just standing mm. around talking to the court for three episodes or four episodes and yeah. whereas it's actually barbara and ian who are off actually having the exciting adventures so every time it cuts yeah. back to the doctor you go oh more you know more standing mm -hmm. around talking in court it, 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 the story sort of slows to a little bit of a halt when when, when that's going well, on it kind of it builds up a little way. bit because they have that sort of potential for trouble when they discover that Vicky is actually a girl and sure. has been misleading them. And <laughs> so it's such a brilliant disguise that Vicky, just by putting on a little elf hat, everyone's convinced yeah. that she's uh, she's a boy. It's terrible. I think the way I look at that that is that um, throughout the series so far, we've seen areas where Ian's been the dominant character or where Barbara's had a lot to do. And we've had a, obviously a couple of stories in season two where the Doctor has been very much the uh, kind of main driving force of what's been happening. Sure. So I don't feel particularly disturbed at this point in the show's evolution that maybe on this occasion the Doctor isn't, you know, doing very much apart from probably smoking fags and drinking tea and, you know, nattering with uh, a young and foxy Jean <laughs> Marsh. But but maybe I'm I'm on my own there. We've, well, we've got different perspectives on it because I've just rewatched this story in isolation from the rest of Hartnell's era, whereas you're watching them all in order, mm -hmm. so you've got a better view on how it, how it all fits together. This could be true. Ah, I never thought I'd be in a position of wisdom. Good thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, normally we, uh, at some point during the conversation, we'll say to the guest, oh, so um, when did you first see story x well obviously you've just explained in some detail about when you first saw it <laughs> uh, um, oh, when when did you when did you two first see it well i i watched it yesterday morning well i watched two episodes and i listened to the other two i watched one of the recons mm. uh that's my first go round mm -hmm. with it i'm i don't know really? if mark's really filled you in but i've i've not watched a lot of 60s doctor who before so that for a lot of these stories this is my first um encounter wow. with them so yeah i'm kind um, of envious of you because that'd be lovely well, just to visit it i i've got to tell you it's so so i'm obvious well not obviously at all i am a child of the 80s and i grew up thinking the eric saywood era was you know brilliant um and the car <coughs> and the cartmel era doubly so and i'm still right i would mm. say about the cartmel mm. era mm. um but i was never particularly interested <laughs> to go back before where i started watching the show but now that sure. i am i think i think in the 60s it was just a free-for-all and there was so much invention and you know we're still 20 years away from the show becoming this aerobarous navel gazing procession of tired tropes and repeated memes and um it's just 
it's just so lively and so engaging at every turn it manages to do mm. something completely different which totally doesn't fit with what's already happened but totally does at the same time um and right. in all of this glory and all of this televisual brilliance that we're uncovering the only problem i'm having is that i i feel that ian chesterton's a massive prick <laughs> oh really I re he just comes across as but this you, kind of... You need of, to enlighten me. Why? Well, he's, just, he's such a sort of pompous, clucking, um, tedious, <laughs> um, self-righteous, just uh, annoying, uh, wild, badly dressed. Um, where's he getting all these suits from? Why is he wearing a tie in the <laughs> console room? Why is he giving us a lecture on condensation? Why is he getting so excited about a magnetron? Oh, God, man. And in this one, in this one, which you found, so you're responsible for this, he gets an effing knighthood. I'll try and lose it again, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's bloody brilliant in this one. You're wrong, Ian. i got to say, when he, when he gets his, his knightly haircut, he looks, I think, really quite, quite good. Um... Uh -huh. And he is quite, you know, hard, and he's dogged in pursuit of getting his woman back. Um, so, yes, in in all seriousness, in this story, he is not annoying much. Um, he is generally I mean, brilliant. The one, the one negative thing I have to say about him in this story is he is caught napping, isn't he? When he gets pegged down and fed to the ants, he shouldn't have been having a a snooze in the middle of the desert he should have been well no i mean i mean yeah the, uh, there's nowhere to take shade so once you lie down if you fall asleep you're going to get terrible sunburn and obviously so this mm -hmm. story is, is set um in jaffa or yaffa as it's pronounced which mm -hmm. is the outskirts of tel aviv have either of you fellows been to tel aviv no no i haven't right well i have um you you don't lie mm -hmm. down and nap in that kind of weather it's not it's not <laughs> the hottest part of the middle east but it's uncomfortable um yeah and uh i was i was there um i don't know about six years ago no less than that maybe maybe mm -hmm. five years ago and it's one of these places where you walk around and everyone that you see literally everyone is 10 out of 10 stunning and it makes you feel really sad to be a little pasty, chubby English. So um, I didn't get much of a sense of that in this in this dramatic retelling of that part of the world. I don't know how to break this to you, Ian, but um, it was actually filmed in a studio in Britain. I won't have that. <laughs> don't, don't do this do to you, me. Going, going, going back to um, William Russell's performance, do you think that he's channeling his Sir Lancelot? I think he is. I think he's he's looking yeah, at these historicals as the opportunity to very very um, gently do something a bit different. And he's because I think the situation is more familiar to the audience. He is able to be less of a yeah, you know, the avatar of the everyman who's watching the show, and he can he can really just sort of mm. get lost in the story. And I mean, well, that's, that's yeah, the you know, role that he's best known for, isn't it? Sir Lancelot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before Doctor um, Who. So the audience would go, oh, we, we, we know him as an English knight. This, he, we know so him in this context. Yeah. 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 That role. yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, it was, and maybe that's why he was able to, to, you know, sort of so effortlessly pull that off. Um, sure. Yeah. No, I, 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 and it really pains me to say this, but he, he was, he was all right in this one. Yay. At last. <laughs> 
It's taken a whole season and a half. We've finally got Ian to say something nice about Ian Chesterton. There we go. Yeah. Don't hold your breath for the next one. He's not. He, he's not in my top three members of the TARDIS team at the moment. But you know, he's he's fine. Oh. Mm. <laughs> okay. So, so, who would you rate as the standout member of the team in this story then? Um, I think, uh, uh, and it's kind of lazy and secondhand and kind of crass to say, oh, it's it's Barbara again, isn't it? But that's the sort of guy is that Barbara. I am. So I really <laughs> did think Barbara was so um, strong in mm. this when... Yeah. I suppose I suppose by now to be fair if you if you, if you look at it in terms of the character she would be used to this by now she knows that life with the doctor is you, know, you get locked up you escape you get locked up you escape mm. someone someone's trying to do something sexual to you um you might have to beat them off if you'll pardon the expression um and so she's got a certain composure which is probably half strength and half kind of just over familiarity with with the sort of quotidian menace presented by historical figures mm. they but they want to you know bed you or cut your head off i think the standout scene for me i totally agree with what you're saying that the standout scene for me with barbara is the bit in wheel of fortune where she she um hands the girl the knife and tells her to stay in hiding and and you know goes yeah. out alone to to save her she basically sort of puts mm-hmm. herself in harm's way to save the girl, and I kind of go, "Yeah, that's 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 typical Barbara, and it's so well performed with, with minimal dialogue." Mm. She's yeah. just she's such a perfect teacher, isn't she? Even though she's not technically in loco mm. parentis for this particular girl, sure. she feels that responsibility for absolutely everyone that mm. she will put herself in the way of danger um, before risking yeah. anything happening to them, and and. You know, she was just stunning. I, I, you know, Vicky didn't do much apart from wear that that hat, and maybe she should have got some sort of small award for that. Um, and as, <laughs> as we've said, the Doctor was kind of largely sidelined, so this was an Ian and Barbara story, and they were both mm-hmm. um, they were both just just magnetic and stunning. Do you think they know by now when this was written that they would be leaving, and this is kind of like giving them a sort of a a, a sort of a great story before they go is you think there might have been the thinking behind it i suppose there's there's an element of that because obviously as as you just said that um uh william russell was kind of identified with that sir lancelot so they're kind of giving him mm. like a, a greatest hits package maybe sure. maybe maybe they're mm-hmm. saying right let's let's play to these guys strengths let's while well, we've still got them mm. let's really ramp it up a bit and and maybe who knows? Maybe between now and their departure, we're going to see them really coming to the fore. Right. I feel we're still at that stage where Ian and I are so enamoured of the the pure historicals because they are such a breath of fresh air compared to, as Ian was saying, you know, the tropes that tend to get repeated right. so often that I think we're still in that honeymoon Absolutely. period with them, aren't we? I mean, I'm, I can't remember just enjoying watching an old Doctor Who for the sake of it and obviously I've not seen these before but I, I can't remember ever being this excited about watching Doctor Who since I was you know nine and it was Peter Davison <laughs> you know I love the Davison era I have to say <laughs> I did at the and, time and the I've, re- I've, yeah. I've just rewatched yeah. it all and I yeah mm. as, as <laughs> someone who works on the, the DVDs and Blu-rays I've, I've you know grown 
I mean, I, I grew up the Davison era, and, and and revisiting it as 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 a professional researcher, I've you know I, I've gained a new appreciation for that era. So so you know I'm very fond of the uh, that that 80s era of the program. Well, I think the the biggest problem that I've kind of identified, which has been as a result of doing this show, is that the when the, when they began Doctor Who, they made Ian and Barbara so um, so totally representative of a kind of you know the, the audience. They were so identifiable. They were so human. They were so plausible and realistic that mm-hmm. they really pulled the viewer along with them, and you don't get that so much with Adric and Nyssa. You know, there's no... The whole Davison era, that TARDIS is full of, like, just... What? Who? Okay, fine, whatever. Mm. So, but obviously I didn't realise that at the time when I was watching it when I was nine. I just thought, oh, they're brilliant. Oh, um, but, yeah. but to me now, that's making me reassess the 80s. Yeah, I, I'm sceptical of that because... Uh, as a young viewer, I didn't feel the lack of an, an audience identification figure in the 80s. I, I didn't feel like I was I was lacking that element of it. It didn't detract from my enjoyment of it. So, whereas perhaps in the 60s, when when Doctor Who was a much stranger and more unfamiliar thing for viewers, that the the audience identification figure was that much important to have in place. That's a really good point. So. And and but by the same token, is it is it wrong that by the 80s they decided not to bother having that because there was maybe a complacency that the audience knew exactly how the show worked so we don't need to have a kind well, of realistic figure i i, I would argue that not, neither neither romana or leela were particularly good identification figures for viewers either i don't think this is you're particularly, not wrong um, you're, not, you're just, not wrong I, I don't think this is. I think this is. I don't think this is unique to the eighties. I think this is also. It did help that they were both really good actors as well. Which well, that's a different issue, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, the the writing is 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 the the decision to put an audience identification figure, and then the acting is is, is, is the performance is is, is a different mm-hmm. issue. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I would never fault Louise Jameson's performance is Leela I think she's fantastic but she's definitely not someone who you could go yeah, yeah. that's me that's that, that's an ordinary person <laughs> that's someone I can identify with well maybe at the weekend yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah I mean I mean just to, to reiterate I'm from Essex so there's a lot of wild-eyed savage women with knives <laughs> knocking around um, <laughs> as, I, as I speak um, yeah but no I, I think I think for me it was it just went on slightly too long in the 80s without any kind of relatable figure and as I say this is not something I picked up on at the time and it's purely with me and it's right. purely as a result of watching the 60s stuff now and thinking it was just slightly more user friendly back in the day compared to the 80s mm. but then again obviously you know Peter Davison is is it depends what day of the week you ask me, but he's up there with my favourite doctors. It's him, Sylvester, and and Matt Smith for me. So I hear what you're saying about the era as a whole. I I think, and I'm trying to think think back to when I originally watched the Davison era. I I think that I identified with the Doctor much more than I did with the companions. I think that I I aspired to be like the Doctor. Yeah, you know, he was he was he, he was the most like me because I was you know. Um, 
also blonde and English. So I totally felt like <laughs> I knew I was with the doctor. Whereas his companions, you had a, an right. Alzarian and, and um, an Australian, mm. and I, I couldn't begin to guess which of those <laughs> was the most weird and alien to me. Um, and Nissa, who was, um, yeah. Well, well, maybe it being a New Zealander, that, that Tegan didn't bother me so much because, you, were, they, you know, Australians are much more sort of familiar type of person to, 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 to myself, so... Yeah, well, now uh, I, I now I know a few Australians. I can I can I can sort of relate to Tegan a lot more than obviously I I, mm. I did at the at the time, and that is a, that is an element of it. Um, mm. But I, I you know I, I I really I did like Janet Fielding in a in a special way. So you know, <laughs> yeah. We we're moving horribly off off topic now because we are we are. We, we came here to talk about the Crusade, and now I'm thinking of. Janet Fielding in that little leather skirt from Frontios. Yeah. You need to get me back in, in 70 years or whenever you do your, your 80s ones to talk about the, those stories. <laughs> yep, no, that's fine. We'll definitely Yeah, we're not in any rush. You might not be, young man. I am. <laughs> I'm in my 40s now. I want to get this thing finished before I go. <laughs> you talked about the, the you know, the... Um, there was a very good point you made about the blackface and that being a, a problem for modern audiences. I also think, mm -hmm. and this is something that struck me when I was watching this, watching the crusade last night, um, that the character of Ibrahim is, is a bit dodgy as well. The, 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 mm -hmm. the accent he puts on his general persona is a very sort of over, uh, over stereotype. Do you know what I mean? He, 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 he yeah. I sort of cringe when I watch his performance a bit. Yes, I I know what you mean, but he, you know, let's let's assume that that was all that was there on the page, and the and the guy was just doing a really good job being that character. Oh, sure. um, so yeah. I think you have to divorce. Oh, it's not necessarily a criticism right. of the actor. It's yeah, just no, the, the, no, the whole sure. decision to play to play it yeah. like that, um, that comes from the director or the actor or whoever. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I I would look at David Whittaker as being the author of that, and maybe uh, mm. uh, maybe lay the blame if blame be need be. Maybe we we lay the blame sure. at, at his door. Because um, you're going through the Hartnell era in order. Are you seeing these sort of stereotypes come out in other stories as well? The the, the sort of slightly uncomfortable people characters that that nowadays we we cringe a bit at, but at the time maybe were acceptable. I think we've maybe come across a couple, but very mildly, and I'm I'm aware I that think on the whole they've been handled pretty well. Yeah, I I know it gets more problematic as it goes on. Um, mm. So I'm sort of braced for braced for worse, um, and I I view everything through the lens of yes, but this was filmed in. The Britain of 1964-65, which was not the most um, progressive or, or cosmopolitan place the world had to offer. So, yeah. uh, me personally, I always uh, leaven these things with a sense of perspective of the humdrum realities of production. Um, oh, sure. So maybe, yeah. maybe I'm I'm just a bit too dispassionate. You could be really offended by some of the stuff we're seeing, but you can equally just. Mm. Just brush it off. It depends if if you want to take exception to it or not. I suppose. Mm. 
I think this is a problem particularly for for modern fans who have come to the older stories. They're they're growing up in a completely different world to the world we grew up in with totally different... Sure societal you know values and what have you so to them it is absolutely it must be like touching the the live track of a you know train tracks it's like what is this Mm. what are they doing this is so wrong yeah whereas for us it's like Mm. no yeah that was how it was um you know they're right we're wrong (laughs) maybe the truth somewhere in the middle of those two perspectives I, i i really hope so I was just thinking as you guys were saying that, um, do you remember back along they had that whole thing on Twitch where they played out yeah, a whole bunch they, of the, they showed all of it, didn't the they? classic <laughs> series? Yeah. And there were so many guys who were watching this for the first time who had been big fans of the modern right. era. Yeah. And they were lapping it up. They were loving it. Because mm. I kind of tuned in for a few thinking, oh, God, they're really going to tear it apart. And they were just <laughs> really yeah, enjoying yeah. it for what it was. That's incredible. Yeah. So I think it's easy to kind of jump to sort of stereotypes on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, because really. I, I, I uh, you know, do if you enjoy Talons yeah. of the Wing, Wing Chiang, it doesn't make you a racist. But on the other hand, mm. you know, we have to be. Well, I think, yeah. and, and you know, take and a, a drink here, but I think Sandifer would, would disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone has an opinion. Absolutely. Don't they? Yeah. Um, one thing I would very quickly like to touch on is that the the Doctor and Vicky had there was that little moment where the the Doctor's got his arm around Vicky and he's poking her on the nose and they have this wonderful touchy feely relationship which seems to have mm. been the relationship he should have had with Susan. Yeah, um, and they yeah. Carol Ann Ford is throwing things yeah. at the TV screen as she's you, watching. You wonder it. if the writers have thought, well, that dynamic works, so we'll just have the Doctor sort of. Yeah totally uh you know pass those feelings on to vicky and vicky's quite happy by this point to see him in a you know an equally grandfatherial way i've made up that word there i don't know if you can tell (laughs) um can you sort of edit that in in post mark to make it sound a bit more no thank no um but i just i really bumped on that i just thought you know they've been they've had a few adventures they've been through a few scrapes together sure but um she still has that little moment of doubt doesn't she that she thinks that the doctor's just going to go off and leave her and uh, i just thought it was was, obviously coming from her original story she's probably that's her that's her character point she's got yeah absolutely she's got abandonment issues and 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 maybe that's even being deliberately drawn on um, in a very sophisticated mm. way for 1960s children. Well, it was David Whitaker that wrote the uh, the yeah. rescue as well, yeah. wasn't it? So I guess yeah, that would that come would work. together. That yeah. would work. What, what can I can I ask? Because in, in the context of you watching these, these these stories in order, what's your opinion of uh, Maureen O'Brien versus Caroline Ford? Who do you think's the stronger performer? Ah, oh, um, is that a hard question? N- I think it's I think it's a little bit harsh to judge them against each other because from what we've seen so far, I think Maureen O'Brien is getting much better material. Yes, I mean she's um, she's she's got a, a very a very different brief, and she's doing a brilliant job. I think Carol Ann Ford yes. did a brilliant job of what she was given to do, but unfortunately, mm, what she sure. was given yeah. to do was so um, not yeah. not offensive. Offensive is possibly too strong a word, but so reductive and sure. so one note that mm. you can totally understand why mm-hmm. she thought well you know this isn't the the career for me i'm 
I'm leaving this show. Um, <laughs> yeah. And clearly, I think they, they learned from that when they were writing Vicky and they made sure that she mm. was less um, less of a a simple kind of, you know, two-speed two character mm. who's either, you know, sure. screaming or falling over. Um, so she was kind of the sacrificial lamb on, on the altar of which the rest of the show has been able to run because they realised mm. how that character and how that role can work and can't work. And ever since... Mm -hmm. Uh, ever since Susan's day, it's it's worked because of Susan. So, so I'm driveling now. It's yeah. just nonsense. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd agree with everything you've just said. <laughs> well, thank Absolutely. you. Mm. Yeah, it's my take on it too. I mean, I mean, the the simple fact is that that Susan still casts such a massive shadow over the show. Every time there's talk of you know this the actress has been cast as all oh, a recurring character from the show's mm -hmm. past. The, the message boards come alive with, oh, it's Susan, Susan's coming back. And she obviously isn't. Um, but she's such a huge part of the show, even though she wasn't really a very successful part of the show. Yeah, I think her two best moments really were the, um, the opening episode of An Unearthly Child. And I think she really got a chance to shine in Marco Polo, which unfortunately we can't really see. Mm. But she sounded in the way it was great. intended, but. <laughs> so unless you guys have got anything else you want to say about this story shall we wrap it up and give it a score so i was just gonna say are we are we really not going to mention the first appearance of uh roy from eastenders as thatcher oh yeah yeah tony yeah. Quinter, yeah i mean that to me that was the standout moment of this never mind the historical <laughs> right. veracity or, or or not or well, he crops up in a few more doctors he really does well. but i think this is this is very much the original and best We'll come back to this feature <laughs> next time Tony Corner pops up. We'll have a, a semi-regular Corner <laughs> Watch feature um, where we'll pay specific I'm attention. I'm probably guessing that EastEnders isn't quite as big in New Zealand as it is in, sure. uh, in the oh, sure, it's, not. It's, it screens here. It definitely screens here, but I don't okay. watch it, so that I don't have that. Uh, no. It's not been any good since Grant it's left. Pro probably really. for the best. It's, it's gone right off the boil yeah. in the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go on then Nothing sorry Mark exactly the but the memory cheats yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think what we were saying early on about about you know this this being a particularly good standout story that it's such a shame that it's the one incomplete story from season two that's always the way though isn't it yeah but you know why couldn't we have missing episodes of yeah. Space Museum rather than Crusade you know yeah, well, that that said, I mean, we had a chat with uh, another guest when we covered um, the Sensorites, and Ben that we spoke to is another huge uh, fan of the the missing stories and you know the whole the romance of it and yeah. the uh, the mystery of it, and um, you know it's a double edged sword. You you could end up with a you know his his sort of take on the Sensorites was you know imagine if I'd not been able to see this you know i could have spent years mm. building this up as this amazing story so um i think you just have to be thankful for what we've got and uh, and i think we've got enough you, of yeah. this story to we've got enough of this story to know that it's clearly brilliant mm. and we are very lucky because mm, yeah, there are stories where we don't have you know where, there are stories where mm. we have half of it that we still can't really 
make that kind of assessment. This is obviously I, brilliant. For mm-hmm. me, yeah. For me, I think that the discovery of um, Enemy of the World really drove that home because the, the surviving episode isn't a particularly strong one. And so the, the, yeah. the prevailing opinion for years was that the whole story was pretty dull and, and uninteresting. And obviously that wasn't the case when, when it's oh, returned wow, yeah. and we got to see it. And, yeah. and so the fan opinion of, of, of that story really, really turned on the fact that we were now able to see it complete. And, and I mm. feel that that may be the case, you know, stories that have been elevated. I mean, the one that springs to mind is the massacre, for instance, that, that, that it's often mm-hmm. regarded as very highly. Now, hypothetically, if that story is recovered, would people still feel the same way about it? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like the, the inverse of Enemy of the World was Web of Fear because we'd all had that first episode for so long and built it up into mm. this amazing thing. And I think there's only really one way you can go from there and that's you know the definitely expectation is so high that um, definitely the rest of it could fall flat a bit i still enjoyed yeah, it enemy, a lot but yeah, um yeah enemy of the world was definitely the stronger of the two to to loop back to where we came in on i i would say that the mm. the the best way to experience the web of fear is to read the target book when you're seven years old cross-legged on your on your grandma's mm-hmm. floor yeah you're never going to get a better experience of that story than that. <laughs> Definitely. Totally agree. Long-term f- target fan. So, Mark, let's um, let's score this, this bitch. <laughs> okay, I'll let you go first. Ian. Oh, wow. Um, oh, uh, I, right. So, I'm going to go... I'm going to give this a seven. I would have given it an okay. eight, but Ian got that knighthood, and that's really annoyed me. So seven <laughs> from me. Oh, okay. Uh, I am gonna go for an eight point five. <laughs> I think it's a really solid story. I think it's hugely enjoyable. It's just a shame we can't see the other two missing episodes, and I think that probably lessens it somewhat. But I just was thoroughly swept away by it. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be my score. Paul, can you score it? Uh, or is that it's a... Just pull the anxiety out of your head. <laughs> Nine out of ten. <laughs> wow. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, to me, it's, to me it's one of the standouts of the, the Hartnell era. And, uh, you know, even oh. if I didn't have the personal association with it, even, even if it wasn't sort of the, the story that's forever going to be sort of the th- the one that podcasts always want me to come on and talk about, it's it's still yeah, a standout story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I th- I think that's very telling. If you give it a nine out of ten, and your association with it is such a, an anxiety inducing, blood curdling, oh the terror, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> if you didn't have that personal association, you probably I have, I have give to say this that was 10. the anxiety of the time, not the anxiety of now. <laughs> well, you evoke it very, very well. I mean, I, I, my heart skipped to several beats, and I was, I was in something of a cold sweat for uh, at least forty-two yeah. minutes. I can tell you exactly because I've got a little <laughs> counter on the screen here. Now you, the thing that you, you, you talk about how if you know people obviously think about what if I found a missing episode. The thing that I think about is what if I found another one? How would I do it differently? So that's the thing. That would goes you, through my mind so, a lot. would you do it now in a much more sort of debonair James Bond <laughs> casual rehearsed kind of kind of way, or would you just jump up and down and go, "It's a missing episode"? Oh my God. 
<laughs> oh gosh <laughs> it's so hard to say now isn't it because i think anyone that you come across who had a missing episode is so much more likely to be aware of it now than perhaps they were back in the day mm, yeah it's yeah. hard to conceive of anyone not being aware that there are missing episodes now i mean I, there must be you know i'm saying that any film collector shall we say because bruce yeah. was a film collector and yet he had no awareness of it no no inkling so yeah yeah I just, I really hope I never find one because it just sounds so stressful. <laughs> oh my God. So much can go it's like, wrong. It's a poison chalice thing, isn't it? It's kind of like you think, oh, this is going to be such a wonderful experience. And when you do actually find it, it's so nerve wracking that you just think, oh, I wish I'd never found it in the first place. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose the feeling that, that must have, you must have felt a bit like you'd found the lost ark of the covenant. But before you can actually get it back to a museum and show it to people, you've got to defeat a bunch of Nazis and, you know, there'll be a, a gentleman melting and then you've got to get through a huge... Oh, you know, it's just the, the burden of the thing and bringing it to fruition and bringing it out into the daylight is... And every turn something terrible could go wrong. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the stress. I mean, hats can, off. Can, to I, can you. I just say, as a caveat to that, uh, un, unlike unlike other certain other missing episode finders, I've never compared myself to Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, the comparison is not for you to make, sir, but I can make it, sir, <laughs> because to me, you're a bloody hero. Unlike other <laughs> missing that. adventures finders. Uh, well, yeah, let's <laughs> not go there. Soiled the away I think, to, I think we need to include Neil Lambus in that too. Absolutely, you're both yes, bloody heroes. So. Yeah, raising the glass. Thank you, Neil. Neil. Yep. Cheers. Yeah. Is there a story where if you found it, you'd be too embarrassed to let on that you'd found it, and it would therefore <laughs> stay missing? And if so, is it the space pirates? I mean, any McCoy. Shut your face. Know, that was missing. I just, you know, shut <laughs> your face. But it's that it's that whole thing. It's that enemy of the world thing that the space pirates might actually be good, and we just don't know it. Yeah, I think it's yeah. it's one of those things. It would clearly be a romp, even if it was nonsense. It would be, you know, so not so bad. It's good, but so silly. It's brilliant, kind of thing. Um, mm. So yeah, and I think I know this has been said at infinitum but it's great we're getting these animations for filling in the gaps with the missing stories but uh you know the whole thing with trout and a, a lot of the enjoyment of watching his stories is his facial expressions and his the business he brings to the part which as great as the animators are at doing their thing they're not gonna be able to bring that element out so um I totally agree with you, and I think that's particularly apparent watching the animations of the surviving episodes of the faceless ones. And you're expecting Trouton to make these mm -hmm. facial expressions that you're so familiar with, and he doesn't do them on the animation. It, it, you really feel like there's something missing there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's enough of us chuntering on. Uh, mm. I think we should get some listener feedback. I've got mail. So it's time for a bit of feedback. Let's have some audio feedback to begin with from our friend Ben down in Indiana. You know, I always thought it, it was weird how not even halfway through episode four, King Richard just is gone. And it's so strange because he's so important to the first three uh, episodes. And then it occurred to me, it's obvious, King Richard, as portrayed by Julianne Glover, is obviously a splinter of Scaroth, the good old green-skinned Jaggeroth, you know, the guy from City of Death. <laughs> 
So I, you, you know who I'm talking about. You know, we are here together. We are Skaroth, many uh, together in one. The Jaggeroth shall live through me. Blah blah blah. The centuries that divide me shall be undone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. So that's obviously why he's uh, gone because he's off doing some Jaggeroth stuff. And poor Jean Marsh doesn't even appear in episode four, probably because she found out the king's uh, secret. What are you? What have I been living with all of these years? Thanks, Ben. And let's go to my first bit of feedback on Twitter. So we've heard from at Heisenberg pod. Uh, so I put out a, a tweet saying, any love for the crusade? And they say, yes, it's one of the very best black and white stories. So very concise, but um, got their feelings across. Andy Moore at ammore67 on Twitter. Uh, he just says yes. So thanks, Andy. That's great. Uh, the then point. he did follow up <laughs> saying, uh, oh, all right, then. Yes, love this. Uh, a love which goes back to reading and rereading the novelization as a kid. But also a great cast. Kay, Glover, though sadly not pulling his face off to reveal spaghetti in this one. <laughs> Marsh, Canfield directing, so Doctor Who it hurts. Ouch. So thanks for that, Andy. Uh, and the last one from me is Ham Fisted Baptender. Hey who says, uh, captivating in all formats, the excellent episodes, the soundtrack CD, the Telesnap Recon, and Whitaker's superb novelization. Oh, and wonderful stories of recovery too. Oh, As we've been hearing, yes. yes. Ian, what so have you heard So I have from? heard from friend of this parish, Mr. Dwayne Bunny. G'day, G'day Dwayne. Dwayne. Um, who says, I adore this adventure. When we only had episode three, I loved the dialogue between Richard and Joanne. The acting between these two is simply superb. And then we got the wonderful episode one. What a treasure. How good would it be to get episodes two and four back and have a complete black and white season? Then he goes, then, you know, a bit of praise for the show. So obviously awkward, embarrassing. Loving the podcast, guys. At the rate of release, I've requested one of your Pertwee reviews to be played at my wake. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to my (laughs) great-grandchildren hearing your thoughts on Legopolis around the time they graduate university. Well, (laughs) spoilers, but I very much like Legopolis. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm not sure he's going to want the uh the pertwee reviews in his wake if he's got a bit of an inkling for how we feel about that but you know that's still to come you see you've, you've got the responsibility of training up your children to carry on the podcast haven't you oh yeah oh, that's yes. it the that's legacy it. Mm. yes it's going to outlive <laughs> you i'd be very surprised <laughs> if that's the case <laughs> <laughs> And Paul, you've had some feedback too. Mm. J.R. Southall wrote, When I first got into the Target books, it was all Daleks and Cybermen and exciting adventures in space, and the novelizations based on historical stories were few and very far between. So few and so far between, in fact, that the Crusade was the only one. Now, having said that, it was also one of the holy trinity of reprints of novels that had been adapted back in the 1960s. So in that respect, it sat alongside the Daleks and the Zabi as obviously very significant in capital letters. Given this fact, which I gathered because of the copyright notice inside the front of the book, when I read it, I did so not out of duty or with the expectation of boredom, but with a certain reverence that I felt it probably deserved. And I really enjoyed it. Not in the same way as I had enjoyed Doctor Who and the Three Doctors, or Doctor Who and the Planet of Spiders, but in the way you might enjoy a Robert Louis Stevenson novel, 
that just happened to feature the regular characters from your favourite television series. Intrigue met daring do, and even romance, where a capital R, in all senses of the word, and it was a light and breezy slightly longer than usual read. When I finally got to see the two extant television episodes, I feared disappointment. Doctor Who and the Crusaders had become one of my very favourite target novels, and a cheap, almost as live studio-bound TV version was never going to compete. Except, the acting is sublime. The dialogue and characterization are about as effective as they ever have been in 57 years of Doctor Who. The sympathy with which the nominal bad guys are treated is unparalleled in the series, and despite the narrative eventually fizzling out a plot rather than reaching for an unrealistic crescendo, there's almost nothing in what survives, nor indeed in what doesn't, that I would change. A sublime example of a short-lived kind of Doctor Who, which sadly went the way of the dodo long before its time. And that's from J.R. Suffle. Wow. Fantastic. Lovely feedback there, J.R. Thank you. If you want to get in touch, uh, we'll have all the various means played over our end credits. It just leaves us to say thank you again to Paul Schoons for coming on and talking to us. Thank you, Paul. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime, sir. Is there anything you'd like to give a little plug to while you're on? Well, ch- check out my work on, on the Blu-ray range. Um, I write the, the info text for some of the stories. Um, the most recent one to come out is um, Battlefield. And um, I'm also working Excellent, on several ones yes. which have yet to be announced. Great. So uh, if you can just tell us what those are, we'll obviously mute that um, for the audience that are listening now, but um, that'd be great. Yeah, oh, thanks, I think, Paul. I think, I think we need to come full circle here, and I'll say it's the of blank of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope it's the Space Pirates. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at mailbagofrassalon at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Time and Space Pod, and you can also find us on Facebook. If you want to leave some audio feedback, there is a link in the show notes. You can use your phone or your computer and leave up to 60 seconds of feedback. Or if you're listening via the Anchor website, you can click on the message button and leave your audio. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you to Momo Tempo for providing our theme music. <laughs>